Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. Vegas! Vegas, baby, Vegas! You're either in or you're out. Right now. My best mates are going to Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Las Vegas, here we go! <laughs> Pack your bags and get ready. You're going to Vegas with people who know Vegas. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Welcome to Vegas. It's a beautiful morning. What a great song to start the day. In fact, all of the music of the Young Rascals has aged incredibly well. Think of the great hits, Good Lovin', Groovin', How Can I Be Sure, and People Gotta Be Free. For many of us, it's part of the soundtrack of our lives. Today, you'll meet the lead singer and songwriter of the Rascals, Felix Cavalieri, who has played for years at the Golden Nugget in Vegas and hopes to get back very soon. Also on today's show, you'll hear from your Vegas insider, Scott Robin of VitalVegas.com, and from Master Chef Justin Wells, who has some recommendations for your dining table. In the second half hour, once again, Vegas Never Sleeps presents Sports Rockin' Tours. It's week two of the NFL season, and this week, you'll witness the first pro game ever played in Las Vegas, albeit without fans in the stands. We thought, who would be better to visit with than one of the all-time great Raiders from decades past, Phil Villapiano. One, two, three. Whether you grew up in the 1960s or simply have enjoyed music in all the decades that followed, you know Felix Cavalieri. His music is really a part of the American culture right now. He's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, had four number one hits, six top 20 singles, six top 20 albums. Felix, what a career. Do you ever go sometimes when you're somewhere, because it's played in the background of our lives all the time, that great music, and you hear it and go, wow, we really made an impact. Well, we don't think of it like that. We just, you know, like I say, when when you hear uh, something that you did uh, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, to me, it just brings a a smile to my face. We had a ball. I mean, seriously, first of all, it's like like a dream come true to be able to do what we did. And then, of course, you remember it while it was happening. It was a joyous situation, and, and that's what comes to mind. Well, you know, I remember seeing Mick Jagger on uh, Dick Cavett's show, and Cavett laughed and goes, hey, you ever think you'd be doing this in the 50, in your 50s? And then Jagger laughed, and this, of course, was when he was like 30. Did, yeah. did you ever think when you were doing this stuff back then that years later people would still be clamoring to hear you sing those same songs? Well, I think the, the first part of the question is, did you ever think? <laughs> I don't think we thought. I think we just did. We just had a ball. You know, those years were very tumultuous, you know, we, we were kids, you know, I mean, you know, it, it was really uh, quite an experience because of all the, the, the British uh, invasion, so to speak, with the music, the Beatles, the Stones. It was a very exciting time. But no, you, you very rarely do, do, do you think this far ahead? No. We never, we never thought this far ahead. <laughs> well, you know, in addition to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you're in the Songwriters Hall of Fame. And right. I'm always fascinated by songwriters. And you and three songs in particular I want to just talk with you about. It's a Beautiful sure. Morning, Grooving, right. and Good Lovin'. How do you do that? In other words, when, when I hear It's a Beautiful Morning, I picture birds flying, the sun's out. Absolutely. It just comes to me. Is that where that starts? Or how, or how did you, like, put that down on paper from, from those thoughts? Just exactly like that. You know, basically... You know, I, I do some songwriting kind of like uh, seminars and stuff like that, especially when I lived uh, closer to the East Coast, uh, to Berkeley uh, Music School. You know, basically, it's, it's like when you're dreaming. You know, if, if you're just about to knock off to sleep and you hit that kind of like zone there, 
you go in there and you just things happen, you know. And and if it happens, like for example, in my case, through my fingers on a keyboard, this inspiration comes out. And then it's it's it's, it's of course like for example, like my, my wife, she's always told me, "Well, how could you watch that movie before you go to sleep? You dream about it." Well, you put stuff in your subconscious computer here that you want to dream about, you know, like, you know, it, it usually like when you're young, of course, it's like mostly relationships, which is what was in our case, with my case. And it's, it's situations that you're involved in. As you get a little older, you know, it's stuff you read. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and it's kind of fun because your music, you can look at, at your discography and you can see a change because when you got to People Gotta Be Free, right. now you were talking about important stuff. It kind of went right. from the romance to that. Yeah, and that's exactly right, man. You hit that right on the head because that's exactly what happened to me and us. By us, I mean my generation, you know, at that time was going through the assassinations, you know, and basically that song, uh, uh, People Gotta Be Free, was written right after Robert Kennedy's assassination because I was working for his uh, campaign, and I was actually dating a woman who was there at that horrible event that he got assassinated. You know, unlike today, uh, we, and again, I use the collective we for that group of people that I was involved with in, in, the, in the 60s, we, we, we were involved in uh, a lot of the politics and the upraising of what we thought was the consciousness of the world, you know, with the, with the Maharishi, and my, in my case, I had a Swami, and, you know, we, we really wanted to do something to make a change in um, what we thought was kind of like a really kind of crazy world. The interesting thing is a lot of those songs at that time, especially after the assassination and so forth, were angry. What's great about People Gotta Be Free is you can listen to that, and, and it's actually kind of a real positive feel to what could happen. Yeah. Well, that has to do with my personality, you know, and uh, that's one of the reasons why my ex-partner there, Eddie, and myself were a great team. Uh, I saw the sunny days. It was always raining in his world. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is interesting. So the two of you are working, and, and you found that helpful, right? Because you could kind of, yeah, the yeah. yin and the yang, right? Exactly. And, you know, like as I say, you know, uh, we just uh, basically, uh, uh, you know, we, we were around at the time when these phenomenal songwriting teams like the Beatles and were out there. And, uh, you know, we just were very fortunate to be able to kind of continue that with us. You know, it was, it was great. Uh, and, and, and it still is. I moved to Nashville, Tennessee to continue writing because... That, that part of our industry uh, looks like it might survive, uh, although like sports, I, I'm not sure where we're going. You know, I mean, uh, I've been, we'll get to that later, but, you know, I'm a big sports fan. Ever since I went to Syracuse University, I, I went to Syracuse right after Jimmy Brown was there. So that place was like, oh, wow. my God, you know, it was like football heaven at that time. Basketball hadn't really hit there yet, you know, as much as it did uh, in the latter years. But uh, Do you still follow the Orange Men? Um, I do. You know, I've got friends that invite me to the games up there sometimes, and I just like sports. I mean, basically, I, I got really hooked. I never was really big enough to play, uh, but I, I, I've always noticed over the years this tremendous affinity between athletes and musicians. They want to do what we do. We want to do what they do. What's interesting about your music is it has a great crossover appeal. You know, I listen right. in the car. I listen to a lot of satellite radio, and there's a channel called Soul Town, which I really right. enjoy that music. Absolutely. And I think the only white artist I've ever heard is the Young Rascals. Well, there's a few others, but still, well, look, we were the first white act to be on the Red and Black Atlantic label. If you, yeah. if you have any, you know, any knowledge of Atlantic Records, that was an R&B jazz label. 
Oh, yeah. And they started another label at that time called Atco, which was where they put Bobby Darren and, you know, Sonny and Cher. But the Rascals were on Atlantic. So we were the first black and white act to be on that label. And, and there's such great stories I could tell you about that. I mean, like the camaraderie at Atlantic Records, which was in those days a small label. You know, it was not Warner Brothers yet. Uh, like, for example, one, one time uh, Otis Redding came to the re- re- studio. He peeked in the door and he said, oh, my God, they are white. More with Felix Cavalieri, singer and songwriter from the Young Rascals, in just a few moments. In town, some places are open while others are waiting. One hotel casino that is open, that still has that vintage Vegas feel, is Circus Circus, which has plenty for the family and a surprising steakhouse that's a must-do. But what about the adults? We asked your Vegas insider, Scott Robin of VitalVegas.com. That's true. Uh, the kids uh, have to wait till they're twelve to start gambling at Circus Circus. <laughs> no, no, they. Uh, it is a it is a weird vibe at Circus Circus. It really is a rarity amongst Las Vegas casinos because you will walk by the 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 uh, the midway area and there are kids playing games. Then you walk over to the casino. There's adult playing games. You kind of feel like it's a. Uh, they're kind of breeding that into the, you know, the really only the only difference between gambling and these uh, arcades and midway games is kind of like you get tickets rather than cash, but uh, kind of an interesting culture. But yeah, especially in the case of Circus Circus, that steakhouse is a standout. It is an oasis in the middle of a kid-friendly. They've got Adventure Dome. They've got the Midway. They've got the Circus Axe. But you go in that steakhouse, and you will not believe that experience. Well, thanks, Scott. Visit VitalVegas.com every day, and you can follow Scott as well on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Manchin. Okay, Sean, we need to talk about our training budget. We're spending almost $1,500 per employee each year. What's the plan? Well, ma'am, 42% of companies are saying that e-learning has led to an increase in revenue. What does that do about the travel expense? E-learning allows employees to learn wherever they are. Then we need to consider the time away from production. I heard that e-learning takes up to 60% less employee time than traditional classroom training. Perfect. Let's find a curriculum company, a development company, a learning management software company. Actually, Epsilon XR specializes in end-to-end learning solutions with tools such as instructor-led training, online classrooms, simulations, virtual and augmented reality, and curriculum development. Get Epsilon XR on the phone. Epsilon XR creates immersive learning environments that engage with your learner, resulting in improved information retention, which leads to better performance and ultimately an increase in revenue. Learn more at elearning.epsilonxr.com. Hi, this is Dr. Annette of The Dr. Annette Show. We've been talking today about COVID-19 and steps you can take to possibly prevent or mitigate infection. Silver and zinc have been used for centuries as disinfectants and as antimicrobials. We're offering you this special discount to make it easier and more affordable to get these essential silver and zinc liquid mineral supplements. Visit our website at www.elementalresearchinc.com and use promo code VEGAS20 to get 20% off silver and zinc products. Once again, that's www.elementalresearchinc.com and use promo code VEGAS20 to get 20% off silver and zinc products, professional line not included. We are all in this together, and we can get through this. Learn more at ElementalResearchinc.com and use the promo code VEGAS20.
These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Let's get back to our conversation about the great music of the Young Rascals with their lead singer, Felix Cavalieri. How important was some of the early uh, stuff like Chuck Berry and Little Richard? Was that something you listened to growing up? Oh, absolutely. Uh, basically, what happened is this, you know, real, real quick capsule. I, I grew up uh, in, in a suburb of New York City. I was, I was in a, in a family that, quite frankly, was all medical. And I was studying classical for eight years of my life. And then all of a sudden, I went to high school one day. And my first day of school, this fellow who was to become my best friend... Uh, turned around and said to me, hey, you like rock and roll? I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. <laughs> but I said yes, because I didn't want to be a square. Right. Went home, heard Alan Freed, who had just taken from Cleveland rock and roll to New York. End of story. I flipped. Wow. Yeah, and Alan Freed was playing the really cool stuff, right? I mean, it, it was the stuff that other places you just never heard before and some such great stuff exactly and 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 basically i was lucky enough to be in the you know the new york area uh wins uh, 1010 and i heard all this as you say great stuff Blue chuck berry absolutely well this whole term blue-eyed soul i mean that goes back to what you did and and, and the group did and th- well, there was no um Backlash was there? I mean, the uh, yeah, the black sure. artists were, were were they upset oh, no, about not it? Not from the black artists, no. Yeah. <laughs> no, the black black artists said, "Hey, it's old brother." <laughs> no, no, no. We 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 never had a. I mean, like I say, we, seriously, it, it, that I should say it doesn't exist. But you know, basically, musicians respect musicians. Your songs have been recorded by a number of different people. I mean, from right. you know Marvin Gaye and Gloria Estefan, Booker T and the MGs. I mean, Dusty Springfield. Do you like that? I mean, is that when you hear something like that and somebody that take kind of a different take on your music, but Absolutely. you like where they go? Of course, it's a compliment. It's it's a major compliment, and uh, you know, it's something that as as a matter of fact, you know, I. I moved to Tennessee to Nashville, Tennessee, for that sole purpose was to was to write for other people besides myself. So yeah, that, that, that's, that's, that's a real nice thing. You know what I mean? There's, there's no question about it. It's, as a songwriter down here, these people, that's what they look forward to is somebody doing their music. You like doing country music by any chance? Cause I, mean, I don't that, do country. I'm, at all. I, huh? at well, all. <laughs> I, 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 the closest thing I did is I just did a, a new album, and I wrote with one of the, one of the, uh, uh, one of the best writers down here, this fellow Steve Warner who's a, a Chet Atkins kind of like guitar yes. person and writes great stuff for Garth Brooks and all that. The closest thing I ever, ever, ever did to country. But, you know, it's so interesting because it's like, as I'm speaking to you, I don't think there's any doubt as to what part of the country I come from. You know what I'm saying? Right. <laughs> yeah. It's the same thing when I sing what might be a country song. It don't sound like country. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I guess it's no different than somebody from the Deep South trying to sing something. You can tell where that's going. <laughs> Just based yeah, on and, and, and you know what? That's what makes America great. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I like about this place. You know, it used to be where, as you traveled around the United States, if you went to different uh, areas, there was different music. Unfortunately, it's not like that anymore. It's all one music. You know, the 
the people who are in control, the Live Nation and those people. But it used to be when you went to New Orleans, you heard this great funky stuff. When you went to California, you had that kind of like, you know, airy stuff, you know, like Beach Boys and Birds. And now it's all the same. You know, it's interesting. You grew up in an Italian family. And just like mine, I know what that's like. Music's a big part. Like you said, even though you didn't have rock and roll then, classical music and so forth, you were expected to understand this and like it, right? I mean, that was part of growing up. Well, it should be. You know, basically, it was culturally uh, important, and uh, it's also musically important. And it's good for your soul. It's good for your brain. It's good for everything. You know. Well, hopefully, you know, like I say, uh, not to be, you know, di- digress from our subject here, but down in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, we started a little family down here of people, uh, which we call the uh, Manja Group. Nice. And uh, it's a bunch of men who cook. <laughs> Love that. Love yeah. that. Yeah, and and you know, like as I say, you know, this is a fastly dying tradition. Uh, even just the food. I mean, you know, basically the uh, holidays and all that. That you know, I'm really proud to be part of. Well, yeah. Did you when you were growing up? I mean, I wonder if you were like me. I had like six, seven Italian families that I hung out with relatives, and everyone had a great sauce, and everyone was just a little bit different, and they were all great. Was it kind of like that where you grew yeah, up? Yeah, you know, and that's what I really miss because. That doesn't seem to be around anymore. Of course, as we move and you know migrate to different parts of the country, as people pass, but that generation that you know basically was before us, yeah, man, it's a great tradition to grow up in, and and, and I'm really happy that it happened to me, as I'm sure you are. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, when you're in Vegas, you come out. There's some great Italian restaurants, but there's a few of these old vintage classic Italian restaurants, and you just walk in and you get that smell, and it brings oh, yeah. you right back. <laughs> oh yeah, trouble. Those are trouble places. <laughs> they, they add to your waistline. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Believe me, I understand that. Yeah. Thanks, Felix. We're going to continue our conversation with Felix Cavallari next week. You don't want to miss it. Let's bring in now our gourmet chef, Justin Wells of La Petite Maison, to discuss kicking up your entertaining efforts at home. Today's topic, dinnerware and glassware. How important is that? I mean, is there something we should be looking for specifically? And and I'm thinking in terms of entertaining. I think that comes down to stylistic preference. I mean, we use, we like Japanese pottery. We use a lot of it at our house. And it's funny because we have a set of, like, our fancy, you know, everybody's kind of got a fancy set that they take out when they have guests or, or, you know, for special occasions and stuff like that. And I found myself just starting to use them every day. You know, we had some crystal, um, like, highball glasses that we would just, oh, we have company over, we'll make a cocktail on these. And I just started using them every day. And I said, you know what, life's short, I'm going to eat on China. So um, we have a lovely set of China that I actually got that's a Russian China, um, just absolutely stunning stuff that I got from my grandfather when he passed. And so that's our truly special stuff that we take out for special occasions. But we use all of our nicest stuff on a daily basis. I don't see the point, really, in having it if you're not going to use it. I grew up in a household where you only used it once or twice a year, and I agree with you. You have this beautiful stuff. Why not enjoy it? Worst case scenario, right? If you break it, you can replace it. For sure. Or if not, then who cares? You love the thing, and it went away. So, I mean, it's just, I think that, yeah, again, use the stuff. I mean, we we use, you know, really nice stemware when we drink wine. I think it's funny you got guys drinking $200 bottles of wine and they're using $7 stems from Target. It's like for the cost of a third of one of these bottles you drink regularly, you could have the nicest stemware made. And so you kind of proposition people like that and they kind of chuckle and realize, oh, yeah, you're probably right. And so um, people tend to go that direction. But I think what's fun is I like eclectic sets of stuff to dine on. So 
like if we travel and I find a piece of pottery I really like, I'll buy it even if it's only one or two. So I don't really feel the need to have a matching set of 24 plates. Like I think it's cool to have different sized bowls. And at the restaurant you eat, we have a huge array of stuff that we plate. I mean, we have sort of some formal china, we have some handmade stuff, we have some kind of hokey stuff that I found that's small and interesting. And so I think that's just as fun as the dish. And a lot of times the right dish can really make the presentation pop. And being able to clean stuff is huge. Being able to work, you know, I bought my mom this giant Le Creuset and she loves it, but she can barely lift the thing. And so her likelihood to use it is almost zero. Thanks, Chef. Remember, all of our shows are archived on our website, VegasNeverSleeps.com. You can also listen on SoundCloud, iTunes, and more. Coming up, Vegas Never Sleeps presents Sports Rock and Tours. Today's conversation features one of the great personalities from the Raiders of the 1970s, linebacker Phil Villapiano. You are listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Vegas, here we go! They were there when history was made. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Inside the 20. Touchdown! A Rackham Tour is a storyteller. Welcome to the Sports Rackham Tour. And with two out, you talk about a roll of the dice. This is it. Lewis gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! The Sports Tours dusts off the great American art of storytelling from the players, coaches, media, the people who were there. Smith corks one in the right down the line. It may go. Go crazy, folks. Go crazy. It's a home run. Go crazy. Now, here's Stephen Maggi. Welcome to Sports Rockin' Tours, a show that presents observations, recollections, and memories of a select group of storytellers who represent the past half-century or so of American sports. This Monday night, the first home game in the history of the Las Vegas Raiders will be played against the New Orleans Saints. There will be no fans in the brand-new Allegiant Stadium, but this represents another historical change in the history of the Raiders. So with that in mind, let's meet an important player from that earlier history, Phil Villapiano. When you think of the 1970s Raiders, yeah, the Oakland Raiders, you're thinking of hard-hitting and doing whatever it takes to win. And we have Phil Villapiano, who actually encompasses that whole entire Raider image. Phil, great to have you on. You were born to be a Raider, don't you think? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. If I ever thought I could make it to the pros... Then I would be, I would have definitely been a Raider. I mean, but, uh, you know, I look back at my life and, and the way I played football and the way I, I mean, I just loved football and I loved the hard hitting part of the game. And, you know, when I went in the NFL, there was no team hitting any harder or bending the rules this way and that way and having more fun. And I think, you know, my personality fit perfect with the Raiders. I remember covering the team out in Santa Rosa, you know, the preseason camps, and yeah. the camaraderie among you guys was unbelievable. Uh, my partner at the time was Monty Stickles, who was announcing the games for oh, the Raiders. Yeah, yeah Good guy. 
and going up there and spending some time, you guys liked each other too. I mean, it really was a bond. Yeah, we did. We 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 did. You know, it it was the way. I didn't start it, you know, I, it, but when I got there, there was like George Blanda, Jim Otto, Pete Banzak, Kenny Stabler, you know, Dan Connors. These older guys, they loved each other. The younger guys just blended right in. So whoever started it did a good job. I just helped to continue it and loved it. And, and, and to this day, you know, I think back about the older guys that were my buddies, and some of them are, are, are dead now. But uh, it was such a such a, a treat to play for the Raiders. And, and and you know another thing, Steve, we all thought the same way. Al Davis drafted guys that were pretty similar going in. You know what I mean? It didn't take too much to tweak it one way or another. And like even like a guy like Monty Johnson, and Monty Johnson was a big monster from Nebraska, but he just wasn't a Raider type guy in the beginning because he grew up on a farm, you know, from Nebraska. And and a lot of the Raider guys were city guys, and 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 I remember Monty just kind of grooved himself right in there and became (laughs) one of the boys. And you know, when when that happens, it's such a good thing and. You know, probably even Jim Otto, you know, even though he was here, he just loved his teammates so much. He was a special guy to, to hang out with and to follow. And I remember when big Bob Brown came on our team. Now, Bob Brown played. He was huge, three, 310 pounds, played with the Eagles, came when he came to us, and he became one of the boys. <laughs> it, was, it was so much fun to see Bob Brown come in with this attitude of the, like, NFC East. And all of a sudden, he was an AFC West fun guy. So yeah, we 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 turned some guys around. And uh, but you know what? If you, if you didn't play ball and you weren't a Raider type guy, John Madden and Al Davis would make sure you weren't there too long. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you. You think this goes to Madden because they had guys that come in like Matuzak and Ted Hendricks who had difficulties in other places, yet they came there and just fit in really well. So that's the beauty of the Raiders. And uh, I remember, I mean, I remember Otis Sischunk, and this is one of the guys, and, and you know, first ball-headed guy, never even played in college. And he came walking out on the practice field. And he had a stomach. He looked like he was eight months pregnant, you know. <laughs> and nobody cared about his stomach. It was getting to the, get to the passer, you know. So I remember Otis, they put him right next to me, and we had a great time together. And, you know, he he blended in within a day, you know. So it was, And the twos, yeah. How about Bubba Smith? You talk about a guy blending in Bubba Smith, you know. All those years with the Colts, he came out with the Raiders. And he couldn't wait to be a Raider and hang out and, and, and do the crazy stuff that the Raider guys did. So, yeah, it was a special team. And, and you know, you, you can't win that many years in a row unless you really love your teammates. There's a couple of guys that have not made the Hall of Fame. One is Coach Flores afterwards, who statistically, anyway, looks like a great fit, nice guy. And then Cliff yeah. Branch. How is Cliff Branch not in the Hall of Fame? Well, it's very, very strange. And uh, the only way I, I can analyze it is we had so many good players and we had so many guys getting in 
that almost probably the whoever does the nominating probably said, whoa, 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 we have a Raider quota already fulfilled, you know, so let's go somewhere else. But a guy like Cliff Branch, he should have been in the Hall of Fame. Nobody could cover Cliff Branch, and now he's dead. It stinks when, when you get overlooked like that, but that, hey, way back when, I'm not sure nowadays, because nowadays it looks like they picked on your credentials. Mm-hmm. But there was a time when you could get in just because they needed to have a 49er go in or, you know, someone like that, say, just to make it look good, you know, more of a popularity contest. But I think nowadays it's, it's pretty, uh, pretty solid, mm-hmm. but Cliff at one time, he'll get in because he had, he had the credentials. He wasn't just fast. He also made some great catches. Uh, oh, unbelievable. Let's talk yep. about that Miami Dolphins game because I just thought of his great catch in that. You made a big play in that, too, and people might forget you, you intercepted a pass, which that game could have still gone on. I, I remember being there, and it was an amazing it was an amazing exhibition of football that day, i got to say. Yeah, that was, you know, that was one of the, f- the most fun games I've ever been involved in. And, uh, that wasn't the championship game. That was the, the playoff game. Right. And, uh, the, you know, the Dolphins came, and, you know, the whole town of Oakland was so fired up to knock them off because they were 17-0 and the year before. And, we, you know, we were going to be the spoilers. And I remember – I. Nate, Nate Moore, something ran back. Yeah. The opening kickoff broke our hearts. And then we we were battling back the whole day. And, uh, you know, I think the only time we took the lead was when we, you know, we took it at the end there uh, on the Kenny flip over. Uh, what, what, what did Clarence they call Davis. that one? What was sea that? of hands. Yeah. And then, you know, we, um, you know, we knew Greasy was going down. And, you know, me being around a little while, I knew – his favorite receiver, and I knew where he liked to to, to get him. I was playing on the I, you know on the left outside, and I saw you know I saw Greasy, you know look look me off kind of, and as soon as he looked me off, I knew he was going the other way, and I started sprinting to the middle of the field right where I thought he would find Paul Warfield. And it was a good thing I made that play because uh, if Paul catches that, he had a lot of running room, but. I, I got over there and pulled it in, and I, I never I never forget the, uh, you know, I knew how much John Madden wanted to win that game, so I, I wouldn't let anybody have that ball. I whenever I gave it to John, and he stuck it up in the air, and <laughs> boy, that was a that was a wonderful, wonderful day. Beat a great team, and then we lose to the Steelers the next weekend. Ah, <laughs> kill me, kill me, man. We'll be back with former linebacker from the 1970s Oakland Raiders, Bill Bill Biano, in just a moment. You're listening to Sports Rock and Tours with Stephen Maggi. Smith in some trouble. Steps up. Smith can run. Smith takes it across the 30, and Alex Smith is still going. Smith bounces off a tackle. What if every dollar you invested into your training program turned into $30 of revenue? What if your learning program was so engaging that your employees looked forward to annual trainings? And what if you could monitor the success and effectiveness of your curriculum with quantifiable metrics? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. E-learning has made each of these scenarios possible, utilizing tools such as virtual and augmented reality, simulations, and online instructor-led training provides a safe environment for employees to learn at their own pace. 
Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Here at Epsilon XR, we have 50 years of experience in creating powerful and effective training programs. We combine proven training methods with cutting-edge technology to create immersive training experiences. Are you ready to take your training program to the next level? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Training.epsilonxr.com. Welcome back to Sports Rockin' Tours. You are listening to a pro bowler from the powerful 1970s Raiders, Phil Villapiano. What was it like playing with Atkinson and Tatum? Because they were the, they were a tough pair out there, and you know you're part of that defense. Did that help you guys, the, all you guys in front? Because nobody wanted to have them come from behind them and hit them. I mean, oh, I know. They were, we had a great group of safeties back there. I mean, Jack Tatum. I told uh, me and people this when he would come up and hit somebody. You knew it, and not because you could see him, because usually you're in there making a tackle. But the hit, the hits that he would put on the offense was amazing, and it was. And I, I related to, you know, a driver when you when you hit, you know, in golf when you hit, the golf ball hits right in the middle of the driver. It sounds different, and I used to say Jack Tatum sounded different because he would hit the guys so square and hard. And then George Atkinson was totally different. He was more of a street fighter back there. So we had a street fighter and we had a, an enforcer, you know, and wow, those guys could play football. And I, I loved having them behind me. When those guys would break through the line and break through the linebackers. They would say something to us because, yo, boys, our job's to cover. It isn't to make your tackles, you know. So they were, uh, they were a tough group. Fun, fun group to play with, though. Yeah. Talk about different personalities, too. I mean, Tatum, he, he was always he was always respectful and so forth, but I'd never want him mad at me, whereas Atkinson was Ooh. like one of the happiest guys you'd ever want to see. Yeah, right. And uh, But you also don't want Jack, uh, George Atkinson mad at you. I've uh, He was a tough, tough guy, and he still is, and Tate was a tough, tough guy. But you're right. The way they presented themselves was so different. But George Atkinson could get nasty in a heartbeat, and Jack Tatum was nasty all the time. And then it had to be something when you when you were taking a break and you were watching the offense out there, having Gene Upshaw and Art Shell, you know, like you say, and for a time Jim Otto there. What an offensive line, huh? I mean, that's like incredible. Yeah, it was. We had a tremendous offensive line, and you know, don't forget on the other side. We had John Vella and George Beeler, and those two guys were just as tough as Shell and, uh, and Upshaw. You know, Jim Otto started getting older, and they put Dave Dalby in there. That was a young, tough, tremendous offensive line. And it took a while. You know, Gene, Gene and, and, and Art were there. But, but you know, uh, Jim was getting older, and, and then George was new, and then we had Bob Brown, and finally John Vella got in there, and finally... Not that Jim, Jim Otto wasn't the best. He, he was the greatest. But he was just older in the 70s. And he still kept playing. He still get, he got injured every every week for some craziness. When Once we got the right ages in there, oof, we were pretty darn good. And they stuck Dave Casper in a tight end. Big old, <laughs> he was like a tackle out there. So, uh, yeah, we could, we could block anybody. We could open up. We could open up holes in anybody's line and also pass protect, which was 
the key to Kenny Stabler. I got to think Jim Otto must have been a great inspiration because I remember seeing him. He owned a Burger King, which was on the drive yeah. up to, to Reno. And I always would stop in there. And this is like the nicest guy, and he'd be out working. And the poor guy, uh, his knees were awful. Oh, and, I yeah. Know. I know. How he played those last four or five years was beyond me. But, I mean, Al Davis was not taking him out. And John, John uh, you know, Madden was not taking him out of the game. So, I mean, he just kept getting beat up because once you can't move, you're a, you're a sitting duck for an injury. But somehow or another, Jim just fought and fought and fought and, and probably played three or four extra years. And, and great inspiration to me. What a great man he was. And he still is. And he is Mr. Raider. Well, then your, your career, as all careers do, kind of you got a bad injury, you end up going to Buffalo. They love you in Buffalo, too. How was that experience, having done all that with the Raiders for almost a decade? Yeah, well, it was beautiful. I, I, I couldn't believe when I, when I went to Buffalo that the crazy thing was, you know, I, I looked at the Bills. You know, they hadn't won much. I think they, they might have won two games the, the year before I got there. And I figured, well, I'm going to be a starter. And I was playing the inside with the Raiders at the end, but my love was the outside on the left side. I'm figuring I'm going to go up there and be a starter. I go up there and being my agent, we told them what, what we wanted to get paid. And Chuck Nasco is done just like that. No arguments. And he goes, but under one condition. And I said, what? He goes, you're not going to be a starter. Mm -hmm. I said, what? I'm not going to be a starter. And he goes, we have no depth. I brought you in here to play all four linebacker spots and I'm going to call on you and you're going to have to go in there and, and help me, but you're not going to be a starter. So, you know, I, I'm like, okay, well, then I'm going to be on special teams. I, I told Chuck, you got to put me on special teams because Phil, you're in your 10th year. What are you crazy? <laughs> I said, nope, I want to do that. So I became the captain of the special teams. Yeah. My fourth year I, I up there, I injured my knee playing special teams, <laughs> but I had four good years and played a lot of good football and I played you know, inside, left, inside, right, outside, right, outside, left. I played them all. And I had a great a great time, great four years. And I, I really love the city of Buffalo. A great town for people that don't know it. The people up there are fantastic. The football fans of the Buffalo Bills are tremendous. And I couldn't, I mean, I, well, let me say one more thing. A lot of Italians up there, too, Steve. Yeah. (laughs) I enjoyed that part of it. And I just had four wonderful years. And Ralph Wilson, tremendous owner. And Chuck Knox, tremendous coach. And Kay Stevenson coached me for a year. All these, I mean, I just just can't say enough about Buffalo. I had a great time. You had a great career. And you had a fun career, right? I mean, every picture I see of you, you got a smile on your face. (laughs) You were enjoying (laughs) yourself. I was doing the thing I liked the most, man. I was not doing nothing more, nothing more than I would rather do. I I grew up uh, loving pro football on television. I grew up thinking, man, maybe I can, maybe I could do it. Never knowing I could do it, but I did it, and uh, it was almost like a dream come true for me. One thing about you, and before we go, one thing, you've always been great working in the community, and one one thing you're doing with Bonacani and Harry Carson, I assume you're still doing it, was the flag football under 14, and I thought it was great because there a guy who's as hard a hitter as you are, you realize that we got to be careful with kids and so forth, they can't start them out too yeah. early. 
Yeah, I totally like, you know, what Harry and Nick and I were doing. And and we're still doing it, but nobody's, well, I guess there are some some uh, school systems that are listening. And what we wanted was no tackle football to your freshman. And, you know, that means Pop Warner is out. So most towns aren't going to do that. You know, they want that, that they want their kids tackling when they're, you know, seven years old. I'm one of these guys that your whole body, I think, has to mature. And I'm not so even sure that the brain is mature at, you know, a freshman in high school. But it's better than it would be at six or seven or eight. Yeah. Don't hit the head. But, you know, I, I give uh, these people credit. Our boys up in Seattle are teaching how to roll tackle. And, you know, and people, you know, not not being able to use their head. And I think it's a good thing. So, hey, your shoulders are perfect to make tackles. Ram your shoulder in there. Have a good time. Matter of fact, I tell people when you tackle perfectly with your arms and your shoulder right in the middle of a guy's body, I think I've done this many times. It's a perfect tackle for me as a defender, and it's a perfect tackle for the offensive guy. It's almost like the offensive guy wants to say good tackle. Because nobody gets hurt, and you just go back to huddle, and you start again. So I like the new rules for safety, and I, I, I do agree that let's not rough these kids up too early. We don't want to lose any good football players before you get to high school. The great Phil Villapiano. I hope to interview you again, maybe before the playoffs. <laughs> Anytime, Steve. You call me. It's, been, it's always fun talking to you and you today because this was a good con- this was a good football conversation. You can hear more with Phil Villapiano on our expanded podcast, available soon on the Vegas Never Sleeps website, which you should go to and check out the Sports Rockin' Tour page. There you can hear bonus content from this conversation, plus a number of other great sports stories. And don't forget to follow us on all social media platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks for listening today. This is Stephen Manchin. Okay, Sean, we need to talk about our training budget. We're spending almost $1,500 per employee each year. What's the plan? Well, ma'am, 42% of companies are saying that e-learning has led to an increase in revenue. What does that do about the travel expense? E-learning allows employees to learn wherever they are. Then we need to consider the time away from production. I heard that e-learning takes up to 60% less employee time than traditional classroom training. Perfect. Let's find a curriculum company, a development company, a learning management software company. Actually, Epsilon XR specializes in end-to-end learning solutions with tools such as instructor-led training, online classrooms, simulations, virtual and augmented reality, and curriculum development. Get Epsilon XR on the phone. Epsilon XR creates immersive learning environments that engage with your learner, resulting in improved information retention, which leads to better performance and ultimately an increase in revenue. Learn more at elearning.epsilonxr.com.